This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Paul identifies and starts this letter by saying, not only is he the servant of Christ Jesus, but he is also called to be an apostle who is set apart for the gospel of God. On Paul's own apostolic authority, he writes this letter as a theological exposition and as a doctrinal corrective to a church that was drenched in confusion. And the one thing that the church cannot afford to be confused about is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Christians in Rome in the first century needed this letter then, how much more we Christians in the 21st century in Malaysia need it now? We are mired and drenched in our own confusions. As he sets up the gospel, he writes in verses 7, chapter 1, verses 7, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he makes clear in verses 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, that is a sort of summary that captures in a way the main essence of the book of Romans. He's saying there is no shame in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is the only power for salvation. In the rest of chapter 1, he sets out the depth of human depravity. The first reason why there is no shame in the gospel, it is because it is the only remedy to a problem that is as insoluble as this. He says in verses eight, chapter 1 verses 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And there are three verses in Roman one, Romans 1 where it says, They exchanged, they exchanged, they exchanged. And every one of them is paired with the expression, God gave them up, verses 24, to the lust of your own hearts, to dishonorable passions, in verses 26, to a debased mind, in verses 28. And by the time you're finished with the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, we have a catalogue that indicts every human being that ever walked the face of the earth. And it is not in terms of isolated acts. It is a general disposition of enmity towards God. We read in our passage from Isaiah just now, in Isaiah 1, uh, verse 5 and 6, that the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up, or softened with oil. Now, in context, Israel was experiencing the, the results of a sin. And Isaiah here is using the metaphor of health. Health is the natural and the normal state of the body. On the other hand, if there are wounds, open sores, and sickness, friends, we know something's terribly wrong here. 
Just like how a disease produces certain symptoms, so does sin. And every human being has symptoms that point to their sin. And it is God's judgment upon sin that is revealed in the fact that God gave them up. Now, he is not talking about something he was going to do in the future. He is talking about something that has already happened in the past. We have all gone the way of Adam. And thus, the human condition as we know it. God gave humanity over to sin. And that's the story of Genesis 3. The reality of what is painted here for us is actually the depth of our sinfulness. An unfit mind is the fruit of seeing God as unfit. Chapter 2, verses 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, there was a problem within the Roman congregation, and it had to do with being judgmental. It was an enmity towards the gospel that was masquerading as a sort of spiritual superiority. And in Romans 2, Paul makes clear that we can't even trust our own powers of moral analysis because our consciences ultimately lies to us by rationalizing what we do. And we know it is really sin. You know that saying, let your conscience be your guide, is wrong. It's utterly wrong. The very existence of our conscience is testimony that we are made in the image of God. But we can't trust it. Because we are, we are fallen human beings. We can only trust the word of God. We come to Romans 3 and the absolute sinfulness of humanity is held even as we see the most dramatic statements about the righteousness of God. And then the gospel and then the gospel comes in all its glory. Verses 20, uh, verse 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show that his righteousness at the right present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Apostle Paul said, the entire cosmos was created for one purpose. And all of history was culminating in one event. And that is when a perfectly righteous God would display His righteousness and His mercy by demanding, firstly, a sacrifice for sin and then by providing the sacrifice for sin so that he would be looked upon both as the just and the justifier at the same time. 
That is what God means in Isaiah 1.18 when he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red, although they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The Lord calls his people to the bar of his justice, where they can only be found guilty. But it is here that we hear the words of free pardon based on the substitutionary death of a divinely appointed sacrifice. The Lord's pardon, like all his actions, accords perfectly with his justice. But that's not the end of the epistle, is it? Paul goes on in chapter 4 to say that this should not have been news, this should not have been a surprise to us that salvation comes to those who are justified by faith. Because even as the patriarch Abraham was justified by faith. Romans chapter 5 begins with that word again, verses 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 6, we see the summary of the gospel. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In chapter 6, he has to answer a question that is quite natural. We are justified by faith alone. And if grace is as merciful as it is, chapter 6, verses 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That comes immediately to the fallen mind, doesn't it? If sin becomes the reason for God's grace, and God's answer to sin is more grace, we should sin more in order to experience grace more. And the Apostle Paul says in verses 2, by no means. Chapter 7, he goes back to the law. One of the key distinctions in Christian theology is the distinction between law and grace. And yet, that distinction is what we often don't speak as really being. The law is powerless to save, but none of us would have been saved if not for the law. Chapter 7, verses, uh, verse 7. What then shall we say? That law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. At the end of chapter 7, after Paul describes his own struggle with this as he sets himself to obey the law, he discovers that as he watches him, he, he himself in action, he disobeys the very things that his mind sets to obey. He is trapped in his own sinfulness and he writes these words that come at the end of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, if there is where Romans ended, we would be in big trouble, won't we? Then came another therefore in Romans 8, uh, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, do we understand the kind of liberation that comes from that one verse? To be saved by grace is to be united in Christ in a way that that unity cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. Any believer who lives under condemnation lives in denial of the gospel. 
Then in chapter 8, we find this symphonic display of the gospel in order of salvation, which the Apostle Paul makes clear that God's purpose to save is not a new thing, nor can it be severed or nullified. It is so clear with the language that he uses in, in chapter 8, verse 36 to 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, no height, no depth, no anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if the book of Romans ended there, what a note of triumph. But Paul isn't finished yet. There are huge gospel issues hanging over what he has just said. Now what about Israel? What about God's purpose to save? What about God's promises in his covenants? In chapter 9, God's sovereignty is displayed in such a clear and undeniable way. And in chapter 10, we find the Apostle Paul speaking about his own people in a way that should move us as Christians. How we ought to understand the real burden and the heart for, for evangelization. Chapter 10, verse 14. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? What about Israel? When we come to chapter 11, we see that God is not finished with Israel. That God has a purpose for Israel that is going to be demonstrated in the last days. There is going to be a massive turn to confess Jesus as Lord among the Jewish people. And then there is this strange logic at the end of chapter 11 in verse 13. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. It is Israel's disobedience that has led the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles. And now the church, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And they have witnessed back to the Jewish people so that their disobedience leads to our salvation and so our obedience can lead to the end of their disobedience. At the end of chapter 11, Paul goes from argument to worship. Verses 33 uh, to 34, Paul begins his doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of God? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Brothers and sisters, we are not in a position as the creature to question the Creator. There is no way in our finite minds we can seek out in our own power the mind of God. Everything we know about God is by His grace and His self-revelation to us. We haven't figured out anything. And if God did not love us so much that he, he sort of forfeited his own privacy to reveal himself to us, we would know nothing. But what he has revealed, we, as his people, are obligated to know. 
the Apostle Paul has just taken this very young church in Rome through the deepest things of the Christian faith. Now these are, you know, sometimes there are people who have been sitting in church pews for decades and still don't know anything about this. He was not writing these things to a group of professors in theology in a, in a seminary. He was writing this to, to new Christians, to baby Christians, so that they can understand the gospel. We cannot worship whom we do not know. In whose debt has God ever stood? And then the most comprehensive verse in scripture, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He is the source of all things. It is by his sovereign power that all things hold together. And it is to his will that all things are headed. How do we as Christians respond to all that has been said from Romans 1 to 11? How do we respond to the richness of God's grace and mercy? How do we do this? How, how, how is our life supposed to look like? We come to our passage this morning, Romans 12, 1 to 2. We, this, we see this word, therefore, again, in verses 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In Isaiah 1, 11 to 15, God asks the Israelites, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of your burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls and goats. When you come before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. For the Israelites, the sacrificial system was just a ritual. It was just a ritual that they followed. They thought that it, it sort of provided the automatic propitiation and blessing without the commitment or the ethical change. They thought they could do whatever they wanted, they could sin any way they wanted, any number of times, and then provided for the sacrifice for sin without an element of true repentance. A religion of ritual is only noise of feet on a pavement. That's what it is. Nothing more. It's an abuse of the sacrificial system that God had provided for them. Even their prayers meant nothing to God because it was soaked in unrepentant, consistent, personal wrongdoing. When we come to the New Testament, 
the term sacrifice, the terms sacrifice and worship take on a whole new dimension. It's a Christian sacrifice and it's a spiritual sacrifice because it is a spiritual worship. Ours is not the worship of religious buildings, priests or altars. That is not what Christianity is all about. That is not the worship that Christians offer. That is not the sacrifice of Christians. Our sacrifice is Jesus offered once for all on a hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha 2,000 years ago. He is our sacrifice. He is our priest. He is our temple. Our sacrifice is giving up of our bodies every day of our lives. That is our spiritual worship. We give our whole selves to the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that those who are transformed by the power of God through Christ are now to be living sacrifices. We are to be as if we are dead to ourselves and alive to Christ. And notice what the Apostle Paul does immediately. He does something that is in many ways to us counterintuitive. After saying that presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice is our spiritual worship, he then says in, verses, uh, in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So one of the things we come to understand is that the one who is a living sacrifice to God is set apart by the fact that he or she is not is not conformed to the world. What this passage is telling us is that the natural man, the default position for humanity, is actually conformity to sinfulness. The culture of this world is a culture that is in opposition to God. And so we are not to be conformed anymore. We have a tendency to go with the flow. We have a tendency to just move where where our cultures around us move. We are often followers of the fashions and the ideas, the behaviors, the patterns, the language and the materialism of our own cultures. In the Old Testament, in Hosea 4, verse 6, God says, My people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. Where the knowledge of God's revelation fades, it is impossible to be faithful. Where there is no knowledge of the word of God, faithfulness is actually non-existent. And that's a a central problem with the church in this age. Christians that are going to be holy and pleasing to God, who are going to be living sacrifices, must actually develop a backbone based on the Word of God. You must develop courage and integrity to be able to stand up and stand alone. To be able to swim against the current of whatever community they happen to be living at that time. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We live in a world where There are so many methods of transformation. Our cultures offer 
many ways of transformation, but they don't actually work, do they? Ten years from now, you will have a different method. Ten years from there, you will have a different method. Do you know why? Because they don't come from the eternal source. They are all temporary measures to an eternal problem. The only way we are going to be transformed, the only way we are going to be renewing our minds, is by reading, by thinking, and by studying about what the Word of God is actually saying. God expects us to love Him with our minds. The Word of God addresses our minds. When God's Word is applied to our minds, it, it, it transforms us. It is not instant. It is not easy. And it requires for us to do some hard thinking here. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped, for every good work. How are Bible studies going? How much input are we getting from God to correct the conforming influence of this world? When we study the Word of God, it will speak to us about what is in the mind of God. There are only two ways for us, brothers and sisters. We either have the mind of God or we have the mind of the world. How then can the renewed mind be seen? How do we, de how do we live differently for God? We find the answers in the rest of chapter 12. And it's divided into three sections. The common life from verse 3 to 8, about Christian relationships from 9 to 16, and about non-Christian relationships from 16 to 21. The common life is about gifts. And the world has a very different paradigm in the way we use our gifts. If we were of the world, those gifts that God has given us, we would use it for ourselves. We would use, this, you, you would use the, the, the gifts that God has given us for our own desires and for our own satisfactions. But the Christian looks at the gifts and knows that they have a God-given purpose and a God-given function. That's the difference. Verse 6 to 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. If serving in our service, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in, a, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads in his zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, different parts of the body make up one body of Christ. And our gifts as a church belong to one another. They are not for ourselves, brothers and sisters. If you have a gift, if you have a God-given gift, 
Your brother or your sister in Christ has a right to your gift because it was given to you by God. Verse 9-16 Give us instructions about how we treat our fellow brothers and sisters. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Now what a beautiful picture that is. This is how we respond to our fellow believers. And this is how it looks like when the gospel is central in our lives. This is, this is the visibility of the gospel. This is the gospel becoming visible. When the gospel is central, our lives are marked by humble concern for one another. Verse 17 to 21 is about our relationships with non-Christians. Repay no one with evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What strong courage should Christians have so that they are not conformed to this world? You know what? How much easier it is for us to just go with the flow, huh? What courage it takes for us to be actually different. Where in our lives are we loving evil and not clinging to what is good? We have to put into action the right. We have to change our minds that we may be seen as a transformed people. In conclusion, Friends, let us not be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Godly thinking leads to harmony, and worldly thinking leads to hostility. In John 15, verses 19, Jesus says, If you were of the world, that world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore... The world hates you. I'd like to quote Don Carson at this point. In an editorial he wrote on Romans 12 in the magazine Thermalios, he said, and I quote, Thinking differently from the world has been part of the Christian's responsibility and agenda from the beginning. The language Paul uses intimates that this independence of thought will not be easy. The assumption seems to be that the world has its own patterns, its own structured arguments, its own value systems. Because we Christians live in a world, 
the default reality is that we are likely to be shaped by these patterns, structures and values unless we consciously discern how and where they stand over and against the gospel and all its entailments and adopt radically different thinking. End of quote. If the desire of wanting to renew our minds is not within us, I'm afraid we haven't really understood God's mercy haven't we? The basis of the appeal in Romans 12 is that we have experienced the grace and the mercy that comes from God. We have experienced the forgiveness of God that has come to us in the person and in the work of His Son. That's, that, that is what empowers us to live lives for Him. To live lives as a sacrifice. As a living sacrifice. If you have not understood that, you can't live it. Because you are not empowered. You don't know about the mercies of God. How on earth are you supposed to live it? It is you understanding that grace, the depth of that grace and mercy that empowers you eventually to live that life. We need to really understand the mind of God revealed to us when He forgives us in the person and work of His Son in order for us to be really transformed by the renewal of our minds. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for this glorious passage. We thank You for the depth of Your riches shown to us through Your grace and mercy. Lord, we pray that You would empower us to live this life, to live a life of a living sacrifice. We pray and ask you for your forgiveness, Lord, for the many times that we have not lived the way that you have wanted us to live. Forgive us, Lord, for all the many times that we have fallen so short of your glory. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the journey that we make with you from here on would be an intimate journey. We want to walk with you, Lord. And we want to be empowered by your Spirit through your Word to enable us for us to walk with you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.